How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of uh, silent prayer. Make sure everybody's ready to study the word. Make sure we're in fellowship, ready to uh, focus and concentrate. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can be here this evening to study your word. We're thankful that your word teaches us how to think, teaches us the truth, and it gives us the insight that we need in order to live life according to the way you have created it. It helps us to understand reality and to conform our thinking to your thinking. Father, we pray that as we study tonight that we might be able to concentrate and that we might be able to understand the implications of your word for how we do things that we do and how we talk to people about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that as we go through this that uh, the Holy Spirit would make it clear to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, fasten your seatbelts. We're in for a bumpy ride. This is getting into some material that it's simple and yet it's complex. Like most of the Word of God, it is simple enough for a child to understand, but to get into some of the details and the mechanics, well, it may challenge some of your brain cells this evening. I know it's going to change, challenge some of mine just to be able to explain it. But the bottom line is that it gives us great confidence in our witnessing because it ultimately emphasizes the fact that the real power and authority is in the Word of God and the Spirit of God, and it's not in our intellectual ability, our ability to master a certain number of facts or certain ways of argumentation or presenting the gospel, but it puts the focus on uh, the truth of God's Word. But we have to make sure that when we are talking to people who are unbelievers, we have to really understand the questions they're asking, and we have to understand how to answer them in a correct manner. And by correct manner, I don't mean uh, answering with the, necessarily the right facts. We're really dealing with issues related to strategy, and ultimately it just comes down to the same basic principle that goes through all the Christian life, which is trust and obey. We just trust what the Word of God says, assume what it says to be true. But so often what happens is that in our strategy, in talking to unbelievers, for various reasons, sometimes it can be because of our desire to be accepted by them. Sometimes it's by our desire not to be, um, uh, not not to be come across as being radical. Sometimes it's because we um, don't always understand the implications of questions that are asked. But we, ha- Scripture says, we're not to an- in Proverbs not to answer a fool according to his folly which means we are not to enter into or to build our answers on the, uh, on the foundation or the assumptions of his question. Because a lot of times when you answer certain questions or you approach things a certain way, inadvertently what happens is we're assuming 
a non-biblical position, not for the sake of argument, but we've just inadvertently slipped across the line. So some of that will be clear as I go through this tonight. Just by way of review, Romans 1, 18 and 19 tells us that in the world of human beings, there is no human being who does not know internally and via an external witness to the creation that God exists. This is not a knowledge that is predicated upon certain kinds of rational arguments for the existence of God. Uh, We started talking about those last time. This is prior to anything like that. This tells us in this verse that God puts a knowledge of his existence in the heart and the soul of every single human being. I believe that is related to the fact that we're all created in the image and likeness of God so that there is a, uh, just by virtue of our being created in his image, what uh, the Latin term is imago dei, the image of God, just be, because of the our possession of the imago dei, there is a, a, an awareness, a knowledge of God's existence that everybody has. And so when we talk to somebody who's not a Christian, when you're talking to an unbeliever, when you're having a conversation with somebody like Christopher Hitchens, somebody who is convinced of their rectitude in unbelief, and they are knowledgeable about it. Now, not every unbeliever is. You have, all, you have a whole spectrum of unbelievers that you're going to talk to. Some unbelievers have studied unbelief. They're knowledgeable about uh, the arguments against Christianity, and they're, <clears throat> they're sophisticated in that, and they have built a sophisticated suppression system in their head. There are other people who aren't that way. And so every person that you talk to is different. And so there's not a formula that one size fits all in terms of the gospel. The gospel message is the same, but how we talk to people is going to differ because people come from different places. Some people have heard the gospel four or five or six times, and they just need a little bitty nudge. Other people, if they get a swift kick in the seat of the pants, they might move a millimeter, and they still have a kilometer to go. So it all depends, and we don't know where that person is on that spectrum. They may eventually get saved. They may not. Uh, I read a study. I, I always have a skepticism about some of these studies that come out in uh, Christian journals, and you have a lot of sociological approaches to things within the church. So I approach these things with a measure of skepticism. But one study I read not long ago said that the average person, the average Christian, heard the gospel, or maybe I need to restate that. The Christians interviewed for the survey had heard the gospel an average of six times before they trusted Christ. Now think about that. I mean, among the Christians that were surveyed, when they thought about it, most of them would say that they had heard the gospel six times as an average. Some people heard the gospel 10 or 12 times. Some people may have only heard the gospel one or two times. But even in my own experiences, I think back back on it, I was six years old, so there's not a lot of pre-six-year-old memory to draw on there. But have, recognizing the fact that from the time that I was 
two and a half or three years old, I was taken to Sunday school every Sunday, that I am sure that I must have heard the gospel on more than one occasion before my parents explained it to me, and it became, it, you know, under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, it crystallized in my head, and I recognized and understood it and believed. But that was probably not the first time I had heard it. And there are many people who will hear the gospel the first time, second time, third time, and it may take them 10, 15 times before they, they truly understand it well enough to believe it. That's how we do most things in life. It, 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 takes, it takes time. So there's a spectrum whenever we're talking to somebody and they're going to ask questions. Sometimes they ask questions because those questions are a way of keeping uh, truth away. They're going to ask questions they've heard other people ask. They don't know what the answer is. And they're going to say, well, that Christianity was just made up. Uh, you know, It was just the three centuries after Jesus, uh, some of these followers of Jesus made it all up and wrote it down. And they heard somebody on the Discovery Channel say that, and they thought it sounded good. And so now that comes out of, out of their mouth. And you, as somebody who's witnessing to them, have to have a certain measure of discernment to find out, is that really an issue or is it not an issue? For example, if you're talking to a Jewish person and they ask a question, how can you believe that God is a just and loving God and he allowed the Holocaust to happen? Now, that's not a question that they just thought of that they're just throwing out there as a way to keep you at a distance. This is probably a question that is a profound concern for them. And they, before they would ever consider the claims of Christianity, they would want to know an answer to that. So in the process of communicating the gospel to people, there are, we have to exercise discernment. We can't just go, go to drive-by evangelism and just uh, quote Acts 16.31 and say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved because there's no... Uh, necessarily, there's, there's not necessarily an understanding on their part of who Jesus is. How do they distinguish between Jesus and Jesus? And what does it mean to be saved? What exactly is believe? And saved from what? To what? You may think that the answers to those questions are obvious because you've been in Christianity for so many years, you can't think like an unbeliever anymore. I always find it interesting to sit and have discussions with unbelievers and find out what their perceptions are. And you learn a lot about how unbelievers think by doing that. So when we talk to unbelievers, though, we have to have a strategy, a strategy, and we have to have certain, uh, certain tactics that we use. And by that, I just mean certain questions you might ask. Uh, certain ways in which you might explain things. And, and it takes time to learn that. And you only learn it by doing it, which is the hard part because most people get a little bit uh, uptight, especially if they're young, about witnessing. They get their ego, rejection issues, and all those other things get involved. And, and so it's hard for them to sometimes to, to witness to people and to explain the gospel to people. So it's always helpful if we start with an assumption and we know something about this other person, about every human being that they don't believe and they don't know, but God tells us it's true, and so we have to build everything that we say on that foundation. Now, what I'm telling you is something that is in theological 
arena is called presuppositional apologetics because it presupposes the truth and the authority of God's word and God's word alone in uh, any kind of communication uh, with an unbeliever. So Romans 1, 18 and 19 uh, tells us exactly... How come I'm not getting anything on the... No, I never turn them off. They're on. But I'm not projecting... There was projecting through there, wasn't it? Let me... No, it's my computer. It's locked up. It's always something. There we go. Somebody prayed quickly there, and it was answered. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. One of the characteristics of the unbeliever is he's a truth suppressor. So that's the first thing you know. When you're talking to an unbeliever, his knee-jerk reaction is to suppress truth. And he's developed uh, consciously or unconsciously a lot of techniques to keep God at, at as much of a distance as he possibly can. And then Paul says in verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for what God for God has shown it to them. So there's an internal knowledge of God, an external witness of God that they recognize. Now, that doesn't mean that Christopher Hitchens is going to tell you, well, that's right, when I was three and a half years old, I knew that God existed. No, his suppression mechanism went into... Uh, went into effect almost instantly with negative volition. And today, even though he may even remember a time, let's say you have somebody who's an unbeliever and they're brought up in Sunday school or some sort of church activity and at one point they believed in God, they're not going to admit that to anybody, including themselves at this point. But you know and God knows that that's going on in that person you're talking to, and it's God the Holy Spirit who is the ultimate agent uh, in uh, making the gospel clear. And he's going to, as you're explaining the gospel, he's going to be working internally, and he's going to be, you know, tickling the latch on that box where they've stuffed God. And that lid's going to pop open, and God's going to come out and scare him to death. And so you never know how that's how the reaction to that is going to be. Now, verse 20 tells us that these invisible attributes are clearly seen. This is what God says. So I <clears throat> built off of this, talked about two categories of revelation, general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is nonverbal. General revelation is contained in the works of God, we see certain things in his works, but it's this isn't where you'll normally find people will go to general revelation. We'll talk about this tonight. And they will say, see, you can go to general revelation and build an argument for the existence of God. The, and there are problems with that, though. This is where you get into a lot of debate, get out on websites like ICR and, 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 and uh, Answers in Genesis, some of the other creation websites, and they will all have papers and explanations showing what the problem is with intelligent design. It only gets you, if, if it gets you to anything, it gets you to a lowercase God 
It doesn't get you to Yahweh, the triune God of the Scripture. And getting from something that is a designer to the God, who, the self-existent God who created everything in, in uh, six days and everything in the universe by speaking it into existence is a huge chasm, huge chasm. Just because you get to, you say there's a designer, how do you know he didn't come from Mars or for some other galaxy? Because there are some people who believe in some kind of intelligent design and go that way. So it's not necessarily, uh, intelligent design does not equal a belief in a biblical God, in the biblical God. And the problem with that is, as I pointed out, passages like Jeremiah 17.9, Ecclesiastes 9.3, number of passages in the New Testament, is the fact that man is fallen and he distorts the signal that's, that God is sending him. So we have to ask this question, what's the basic problem? Is it spiritual, intellectual, social, education, political, cultural? What is, what's the problem? And as I pointed out, what Romans 1 is telling us is that the problem is spiritual. There may be intellectual, social, education, moral arguments that are then imported in order to suppress the truth, but the issue in truth suppression has nothing to do with a person's IQ in terms of their intelligence. Uh, If I could just say it the right way, if I could just present the correct uh, structure of the argument, then we would convince them that the God of the Bible exists. And I've pointed out in terms of this chart many times that you have four different ways of knowing truth. And the real issue here is if you're talking to an unbeliever and you've got uh, an unbeliever here and you've got a believer here and you're making a truth claim, you're saying the gospel is true. If you don't believe it, then there are eternal consequences. Then you're appealing to something above you as truth. That's an authority issue. What authority can you go to that both you and the unbeliever will accept? If you go to an an authority the unbeliever accepts, you've already lost the argument because you're appealing to a, you're assuming his suppressed view of the world. You're assuming his distorted human viewpoint system as having some level of validity. So that's why I keep going over this again because different people are going to have different aha moments on this. We have rationalism and empiricism that are both built on the same method. So when we talk about method, how you do something, remember a right thing done in a wrong way is sometimes right especially if they end up getting saved. That proves it was right, doesn't it? They, they got saved. No, it doesn't prove it's right. A right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. It's just that the grace of God sometimes overrides uh, our failures more frequently than not. So both rationalism and empiricism are built on this, what I, I call it an independent use of logic and reason because it's not dependent upon truth that comes from Scripture, which should be the foundation of our thinking. It's, it's built on reason independent of anything else, just autonomous, autonomous reason. And then, and both of these are, uh, have 
uh, in rationalism and empiricism, they can come to lowercase truth, but not uppercase. They can't really answer the question, why is all this here? They can tell you what's here. They can observe what's here. They can observe the color, the size of a tree. They can observe the relationships between different uh, classifications of animals, but they can't answer the question why or what is the meaning of all of these things. And then you have uh, mysticism, which is just rationalism gone to seed. You don't have any evidence for your position anymore, but you're going to believe it in spite of the facts. So this is independent uh, again, just as the other two are, it's independent of God. It's not logical, it's not rational, and it is not verifiable. This stands in contrast to Revelation. Now, some some chart similar to this will put authority here, but the issue here is is what kind of authority. It's not the authority of the church. I pointed that out last time. It's not the, the, the authority of the church was what the issue was in the debate between uh, Galileo and and the Roman Catholic Church. It was an issue of human authority and human interpretation of Scripture. But we're talking here about revelation of the order of what God said to Adam in the garden. When Adam's, when God said, you can eat from the fruit of any tree in the garden, except this one, the only way Adam could have ever learned that was from somebody telling him, somebody speaking to him with the voice of authority. And so he couldn't have learned it any other way. So this is the only basis for objective truth. Everything above the line is ultimately subjective because it depends on how the individual uh, perceives it, how the individual reasons, how the individual uh, uh, thinking mechanism works, or how his how he interprets his, his uh, uh, sense perception. And then, once again, revolution, in Revelation, you have the dependent use of logic and reason. Paul reasons with the uh, Athenians. He uses reason. The Bible is not anti-reason. It is against the use of independent reason. Okay? Now, just because I want to scare some of you, this is the chart we looked at last time that uh, Charlie developed that shows the limitations of uh, any kind of empirical knowledge. Human empiricism is limited. We know very, very little, and we can always learn something tomorrow that invalidates everything we think we know up to a particular point. So empiricism and rationalism are limited. Now, having said that, the question before us is, how do we as a believer committed to the authority of Scripture talk to the unbeliever who's committed to unbelief without sacrificing the authority of God and the truth of Scripture in the process? And that's an important question. Maybe it never occurred to you. Now, one of the ways that people think that you can, you can communicate with people is through what's been laid down as arguments for the existence of God. The, and in Christianity, one of the most uh, significant uh, expressions of this was done by Thomas Aquinas, who is considered to be the uh, systematic theologian of the uh, Roman Catholic theology, but actually his the, it goes back to the five ways of Aristotle, and these these arguments for the existence of God simply get you, as I said, to they can't get you out of the order of creation. You're starting. How many times have I put charts up 
or say if you start with creation, you end up in creation. You can't get out of creation. You've got to make a leap to get over into the realm of the creator. And all of these start with human experience. You can't start with the finite and ever get to the infinite. It's logically impossible. Okay, so we looked last time at the cosmological argument for God, which is cause and effect. And I uh, put up on the chart here uh, different expressions. I'm going to skip through these. I don't want to get bogged down in going through this argument again. But I pointed out some weaknesses within... Um, the argument for the existence of God because it inadvertently pulls in various uh, assumptions that are like a Trojan horse and they do damage to the argument itself. Let me skip through this one to the next one. Okay, the teleological argument. This is the argument that in its manifestation today is more popularly uh, referred to as the intelligent design argument. It goes back to a book written by William Paley in 1802 that was called Natural Theology. Now, what did I teach you already on this terminology? You have general revelation and special revelation. But general revelation focuses on God's revelation of himself in creation or nature. So that general revelation came to also be called natural revelation. And then that developed into an autonomous view that natural revelation at the same level of authority as as a special revelation. And then it basically split off on its own. And the assumption was that, that you could go to anything in creation and get as much specific information about God and argue to the existence of God as you can from from special revelation. So Paley basically took the idea of God as a watchmaker. You've got a a watchmaker, you, you look at a watch, and you think about this, you look at a watch and you see an extremely sophisticated watch today. And you look at the whole watch and you think about this watch in its entirety. It is a group of systems that are brought together. It's not just individual parts, but each part represents a number of subparts, and some of those subparts represent even more subparts. And all of this comes together into an extremely complex whole, and it works, and it works magnificently. But if one of those little parts in any of the uh, systems or subsystems or sub-subsystems is off, then nothing works. And the whole, and it's not a a viable watch. So uh, uh, Paley, using that um, argument, argues for that there is we can look all over the universe. We can go out and we can get on a on an airplane and we can fly to Asia and we can fly to Africa and we can fly to the Antarctic. Wherever we go, we see all of these systems that fit within the whole of the creation of planet Earth. And all of the, and the the whole manifest order and design, and all of the subsystems and sub subsystems manifest order and design. So therefore, we come to uh, a a conclusion that, based on the fact that we can observe order and purpose in the universe, that point three, uh, that chance could not account for this. Therefore, only an infinite, omniscient designer could account for this. 
How can we get to an omniscient designer from looking at all the intricacies of the creation? How do we make that leap from finite to infinite? All we can really say is that whoever designed it knows a heck of a lot. He knows a whole lot. But we can't say he knows everything. We can just say that he knows everything about this system of the universe. We can't say he's omniscient. That's a universal claim. And the evidence that we have under the rules of empiricism can't allow us to go quite that far because we don't know anything about who the designer is. So if we say that the designer is God, how do we know it is Yahweh Elohim of the Old Testament? It's just some some being that is a heck of of a lot more knowledgeable and more powerful than anything we can can imagine. So this is the the argument uh, uh, from teleology. Now, it's usually used... Um, read into the scripture and passages such as Psalm 19.2 talks about um, that there's design and purpose in the universe, and there is. You're not denying that. But on the basis of what the unbeliever thinks, does design and purpose get you to the burning bush, the existence of the self-existent God that's revealed in 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 the scripture? So this is one of the uh, problems that we have with the teleological argument. I'll go back and critique these a little more in, when I get, get to the conclusion. Then we come to the argument, uh, the anthropological argument for the existence of God. This is the third argument, the cosmological or cause and effect argument, the teleological, and this is the anthropological argument. And it works something like this, that since man is a moral, intelligent, and living being, he can only be explained if there is a moral, intelligent, and living God. Now, the presupposition, that is the assumption that's brought here, is um, uh, is that since... Uh, I didn't change that second point or the third point. Didn't get that finished. The, or basically, just ignore that slide. But basically, the argument here is that since man manifests these qualities, man is a person, then he must have come from a creator that is also a person. Non, something non-personal or impersonal cannot create that which is personal. Then you have to define what personhood is. Uh, so the anthropological argument basically says that if for man to be in existence... He has to come from a moral, intelligent, and living God. Uh, scripture that is sometimes used to support this is Psalm 94.9, which reads, He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? See, what I'm pointing out is that that's not really an anthropological argument. That is an argument that starts with God and ends with man. The anthropological argument, like these others, all start with something in the creation and try to go to God. But the Bible always starts with God and then goes to the anything within creation, and that's an important uh, that's an important distinction to make as well. Then we have the moral argument, and the moral argument is that the moral laws, the fact that we believe in a right and wrong, that this is universal to all of the uh, 
all the human race, implies that there is a universal uh, morality, a universal truth, uh, a universal right and wrong, and therefore, since everyone believes in a moral law, that implies the second point, that there is an objective moral law, and therefore there must be a moral law giver. Once again, we see that uh, there are some weaknesses within this particular, particular argument. They all come down to the same problem, that is moving from the finite created world and universe and crossing that boundary from the creation to the creator. What is distinct about the Judeo-Christian God is that he is a self-existent God who stands completely outside of everything in creation. In paganism, you had what was called uh, the chain of being. Aristotle was the first who uh, utilized this. And in the chain of being, uh, everything it, it shares in the same uh, essence or being from the gods all the way down to the smallest um, molecule or the smallest atom. Everything is in this same chain of being. There's nothing outside of that chain. What's distinct about Scripture is that God is presented as a self-existent, personal, infinite God who exists for eternity without any creation, without any universe. He's not dependent in any way, shape, or form on the universe, and that the being that that the creation has is not derivative being, it is created being. These are huge distinctions, and uh, this is why all the other systems, basically, the chain of being is just a, an early form of the same thing that's pre present in Darwinism. And then we have the, uh, I'll come back to that in a minute, the last one is the um, uh, ontological argument, but I'll look at that in just a minute. So let's do a little analysis. Let's think about this a little bit. This is where it's going to get kind of fun and interesting, bringing this down to the practical level. So we're going to have a conversation between an unbeliever and a believer. Actually, we're going to have two different kinds of believers. We're going to have one believer who is thinking pretty much like the world thinks. He's going to think like the unbeliever thinks. He's a believer, but he has the same basic assumptions about uh, life and existence and creation as the, as the unbeliever. And then we're going to have a believer who is consistently thinking about everything on the basis of the Bible. So we've got these three individuals. You've got the unbeliever, you've got the believer who thinks like the unbeliever thinks, and he's trying to convince the unbeliever of the truth of the gospel and the truth of Christianity. And then you have this other uh, individual who is the, uh, the believer who his view is based on the Bible, and he's sort of an observer. So we're kind of in that role here. So we're, we're like the Bible-based believer who's watching this conversation, which is a pretty standard conversation, maybe one that uh, many of us have engaged in at one point or the other. And so the believer uh, who's operating like an unbeliever, uh, who's thinking like an unbeliever, rather, is trying to convince the unbeliever of the truth of, of the Scripture. So the first issue that he, that he has to deal with, he may not talk about it, but that is embedded in all of this conversation, as I pointed out earlier, is the issue of authority. 
For the unbeliever, what's the ultimate authority? Why don't we go back to our chart? The ultimate authority is either going to be reason or experience or a combination thereof, or it's going to be his his uh, intuition as a mystic. But those are his options. That's the only thing that the unbeliever can appeal to is either going to be his, it's got to make sense to me, it's got to be consistent with my experience, or it has to somehow resonate within me. It's got to, uh, uh, as the Mormons say, it's got to be the burning in my bosom. It's got to be this uh, uh, sort of this uh, inner mental hot flash of insight into reality. So for the unbeliever, the his own abilities, his own reason, his own intellect becomes the ultimate judge and arbiter of truth, either through rationalism, empiricism, or mysticism. The believer who's thinking like an unbeliever is still making reason and, and empiricism, reason and experience and mis, or mysticism his ultimate authority because he doesn't recognize in the total radical authority demand of Scripture, which is typical of most evangelicals today. For the um, Bible-based believer, he accepts only the authority of God's Word, and he believes that the unbeliever is exactly what God says the unbeliever is, that in communicating the gospel to the unbeliever, he's not communicating to somebody who, who somehow has a measure of objectivity, who is basing his thought on something uh, uh, epistemologically neutral, that, that his, ration, his ability to reason, his uh, experience, his interpretation of experience is spiritually neutral. Uh, so the believer says, no, he's, he's an unbeliever, he knows God exists, and he's suppressing that truth in unrighteousness. Now, if you're a believer and you're talking to one person over here and you think that they have the ability to objectively evaluate the data and come to truth and there's no hidden agenda coming up within his soul, then your strategy is going to be different than if you're talking to somebody that you know is a, knows, already knows the truth, he's suppressing it in unrighteousness, and the ultimate issue, the ultimate uh, uh, one in the conversation who's revealing truth is the Holy Spirit, and he's just using you to do the best you can to communicate the gospel and answer the questions that this unbeliever has. So for the believer that is thinking like an unbeliever, the compromised believer, uh, he's going to appeal to either reason or experience to prove the claims of the Bible because he's accepted the same assumptions as the unbeliever. And he thinks that reason and his ability to interpret reason and interpret experience are valid. Remember, the problem with rationalism and empiricism is that it's an autonomous use of logic and reason. It's independent of the truth of Scripture. So that means it's built on a foundation of unbelief that isn't clear. How many of you all have seen the foundation of your house lately? How many cracks do you have in your foundation? You don't see those things, but they're there, and they're impacting what's going on in the superstructure. And that's the way the unbeliever is. He's, we've got these assumptions going on, and so the believer who accepts those same assumptions has already uh, cut his own legs out from under him.
And so the real issue is, again, the authority. The believer that's operating like an unbeliever is adopting the same ultimate truth authority as the unbeliever. And he thinks that by coming over here and saying, okay, I'm not going to argue with you using that in the legal sense. I'm not going to present my case on the authority of Scripture. Just like you, I'm going to reject the authority of Scripture. I'm going to appeal to you on some other authority. I mean, can we do that? Is that even possible strategically to argue for truth when we've rejected the foundation for truth as the basis for our presentation? So the real issue in this is being consistent with your belief that the Scripture presents absolute truth. Uh, for the unbeliever, when the Bible says something like God created everything in six days or there was a worldwide flood, uh, he's going to evaluate that on the basis of what fits his, what he thinks is rational and what fits his empirical framework. And so his truth claim is, uh, his understanding of truth is going to be ultimately based on his finite reason and experience for the uh, unbeliever to accept the Bible, to start with the Bible as truth, is circular reasoning. That's how they're going to look at it. You're, just, you're assuming the Bible to be true. Well, you're assuming it's not true. Your reasoning is just as circular as mine. So what we have to do is what? Who's, who can live with which person's assumptions? For the Bible-based believer... Though he recognizes the unbeliever knows what the truth is, he just doesn't want to admit it. He's just going to suppress it as much as he can. So he's approaching the whole discussion with a warped view of truth, a warped view of reason, and a warped view of experience, which tells you what? That as you discuss things with them, there are going to be a lot of inconsistencies and problems. And part of what we might choose to do as, as part of our tactic is to ask questions like, well, for example, what I like to do is somebody says, how can you explain how a loving God can, uh, can allow the Holocaust to take place? Uh, that's just so horrible. My question in terms of, well, before I answer that, let me ask you a question. How do you explain it? Well, we just live in a random universe. Well, if it's all random, then how can you really make these judgments of what's right or wrong? How can you ask the question you asked on the basis of your assumption? You can't. So the strategic approach is not to necessarily prove the truth of the Scripture, but by assuming the truth of the Scripture, you can uh, cut the legs out from the, or or expose the presuppositions of the the unbeliever. When it comes to looking at general revelation in terms of nature or the creation, what we talked about, I talked about in terms of general revelation, the claim of the, of the unbeliever and the claim of the believer that's thinking like the unbeliever, in other words, William Paley and a lot of these uh, Christian apologists coming out of the Enlightenment was that general revelation is a book of truth that is no different than uh, special revelation. It has the same authority. But see, it doesn't have any words, so how can you learn anything specific out of a picture book. All you have is pictures. The, the failure is that, uh, and with this position, is that all of nature is being interpreted uh, by the unbeliever 
in terms of truth suppression. He's looking at all the data, and he's suppressing it. That data is saying, God made me. See the brand right here? It's got God on it. And in his soul, there's something in his soul that's resonating with that, and he's just stuffing it down and suppressing it as, as, as much as he can. He's involved in truth, truth suppression. So for the unbeliever, when he looks out at a tree and all the systems within a tree, all of the, the factors related to the leaves, the cells, all of the things related to, to the, the growth of the tree, everything else, which uh, we see is uh, you look at intelligent design, they build all these arguments on the complexities of all the details, and the, you look at it and you go, isn't intelligent design wonderful? That shows that God must exist. And the unbeliever looks at it and says, wow, anything can happen, can it? Isn't it marvelous? Just given enough time, it can just happen. Is that irrational? It's irrational on your assumptions. It's not irrational on his assumption. Because his assumption is given enough time and chance, anything can happen. Somebody might even rise from the dead. Anything can come into existence. That, that's his uh, assumption. So he's, you're going to look at it and say, this, is, uh, this tree is designed by God. He looks and says, well, that's just a random product of chance. And so you look, you, you look, the believer operating on the assumptions of Scripture is going to look at everything in creation differently from the unbeliever. He looks at the laws of, what, what, what underlies the cosmological argument? Cause and effect. What underlies the teleological argument? Observe, observe principles of design and purpose. What underlies the anthropological argument? certain assumptions about man's nature as being intelligent and as uh, having a soul, emotion, all of those things related to uh, the uniqueness of man over above, the, over above the animals. But just go ask anybody who down in Bolivia and uh, in their legislature, didn't they just pass the law that said that now they're, they're going to have a legal advocate for Mother Earth and for nature so that so that uh, man, men, human beings can be prosecuted in law courts on behalf of the damage that they do to Mother Earth. See, they're elevating everything else in creation to the level of humanity or actually downgrading humanity to the level of, of the rocks. So, see, unbelief is suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. So the, the, the believer who's operating on uh, basically the assumptions of the unbeliever, says, okay, I can convince him of the order of the universe. I'm going to take him on a tour of the planet. And they go all over the planet and then all over the universe to point out all the marvelous, intricate facts of God's creation. Then he'll believe in God. And then I'll take him up to the Hubble telescope and we'll look throughout all the universe and we'll see the design, everything throughout the whole universe. And there's no way with all of this understanding that he can reject the existence of God. But the unbeliever, based on Scripture, doesn't have a problem with knowing that God exists. He has a problem with accepting that God exists. He's suppressing all that truth. He's being loaded or overloaded with all this data, and he just dismisses it because he doesn't accept the conclusion. The issue is spiritual. It's not knowledge. It's not information. And so the unbeliever is going to say, well, I don't see any rhyme or reason to any of this. I don't see any purpose or meaning. I've seen no God or evidence of God. So now the, um, 
uh, the unbelievers just marveling at everything that raw chance can produce if given enough time. Now, the point that I'm making in all of this is to show that the, unbelie- the, the believer that's operating like an unbeliever is using a method and a strategy that is assuming the same ultimate truth authority as the unbeliever. And he's trying to start with that to get him over into truth. So he's saying, okay, on your assumptions, we're going to end up with God. And so uh, the unbeliever then comes along and he says, well, uh, you see um, cause and effect, you see order and design, all of these things exceed anything that man is, uh, is capable of doing. Uh, but all it gets us is to the probability that there exists something that's a greater cause or designer. It doesn't get us to certainty. It doesn't get us to absolute reality. It just All it gets us is probability. So what's going on here is based on general revelation. General revelation operates cause and effect, the cosmological argument. It's general revelation. The teleological argument operates within a framework of general revelation. The moral argument, the anthropological argument, all these arguments operate within the framework of general revelation, and they assume that cause and effect within the creation must be the same as they are outside the creation. But a smart unbeliever is going to say, well, cause and effect is the same for you as it is for me, and design and purpose is the same for you as it is for me. Why do I need God? Because you haven't proven God. You've just, you've just proven that there's order in the universe. You've just proven that there's cause and effect to a certain level, but that doesn't get us uh, necessarily to, uh, to God. So the book of nature or general revelation doesn't get you to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in terms of these, um, in terms of these arguments. So the claims that the believer's making in, in light of the unbeliever's assumptions... Uh, the claims of rationality and purpose in the universe, uh, all that gets him is someone who has greater rationality, greater knowledge, and greater purpose. It doesn't get him to omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence. only gets him probability. Now, probability rests on possibility, and so all that argument gets you is a probability that God exists, but the probability that God exists is also a certain probability that he doesn't exist. And since probability is built on the foundation of possibility, it doesn't get you a self-existent God. It just gets you a contingent God. And the unbeliever just says, well, all you did was get me to a contingent possible God. I've got a contingent possible view myself. Why should your view be any better than mine? I don't believe in your God. Now, the God that the Bible presents is not a God that is just possible. It's not a God that is contingent upon anything. It is an eternally existent, self-existent, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God. And by going to these kinds of arguments, what happens suddenly is you bought into a smaller God view. You're built, you're built into a God that is built on a, on a false view of of a natural uh, natural theology. You can't cross the line from finite to infinite. So the unbeliever has recognized 
that in terms of this kind of an argument, the believer who's thinking like he is ends up with the same kind of God that he has, which is a God that's part of the chain of being, a God that's contingent, not a God that is autonomous. So the conclusion from this that we see is that, each, first of all, each of the four arguments start from finite experience and attempt to argue to infinite reality, and you can't cross that line. Second, these views use the idea of cause and effect, purpose, human morality, and design, and assume that they're just, uh, in, just as intelligible and mean the same thing to the unbeliever who's suppressing truth as they do to the believer who accepts truth. But remember, the unbeliever is suppressing truth, so how can you assume that his truth position is anything different than truth suppression? How can we go over to his view and argue from what's wrong to what's right? You can't do it. It's logically impossible. Third, each view attempts to start with ideas of cause, cause and effect, morality and purpose, but it treats them as being autonomous. God is the one who creates cause and effect, design and purpose, and defines what those mean. God is not, does not have autonomous ideas of purpose and meaning and design and cause and effect behind him. Those are not autonomous realities in the universe. They are what they are because God made them that way. So for a Christian, you can't treat cause and effect as something that's an autonomous law. You have to treat cause and effect as something that God put into the universe. And that's not the same cause and effect as what the unbeliever has. Just as the tree that you see isn't the same tree that he sees. So with that failure, the next argument is this one. Instead, those all, as I pointed out a couple of weeks ago, those five ways all are based on what's called a posteriori, posterior, you know, that's what comes afterward, okay? Okay, comes after you observe creation. You observe different things in the creation, and then you try to argue to uh, universal truth. So that didn't work, so there was the development of what's called an a priori, that is prior to, just means one's prior to, one's after, one's prior to looking at the elements within creation. And so the ontological argument is based on a certain understanding of the meaning of being or uh, existence itself. That if something uh, exists, it must uh, necess- if there is a perfect being, he must necessarily exist. And so the argument basically runs, there are different forms. Uh, Anselm, uh, about the 10th century, was the first to articulate this in his book, The uh, Proslogian. And he said that because we have an idea of a most perfect being, and second, because the idea of a most perfect being includes existence, since a being otherwise perfect who did not exist would not be as perfect as a being who did exist. Therefore, since the idea of existence is necessarily contained in the most perfect being, that most perfect being must exist. Isn't that fun? Go home and think about that tonight before you go to sleep. I wrote my master's thesis on Aquinas' refutation of Anselm's ontological argument. 
I don't even understand what I wrote. Isn't it amazing? You can go through things in your life and you look at, go through classes, you have all this, you write it out. Years later, you go back and you go, I don't even know what I would, I don't remember any of it. So the issue then is where does, where does this idea come from? And the, it's the idea that an absolute being that did not exist is not as perfect as an absolute being that did exist. So therefore, since we have the idea of an absolute being that exists, he must exist. Well, once again, we get into some of the same basic, basic problems, and that is that our concept of existence and uh, necessity are defined within a creaturely finite concept, and we're trying to argue from creaturely finite over into into the um, over into the infinite. So, uh, since uh, the time of Immanuel Kant, which is the late 1700s, it, this argument pretty much has not been accepted. Except, what's interesting is that this, the uh, implication of that is that those who lived before, who are operating on something of a theistic worldview, accepted it. But that's because uh, that's because essentially to believe any of these. It's because you already believe God exists. And that leads us to t talking a little bit about the importance of Christian evidences and apologetics. While apologetics is defined as the way in which we defend, it has to be a strategy, how we defend what we believe and present the content of it, a lot of the details related to Christian evidences, Christian truth, evidences for the resurrection, evidences for the veracity of Scripture, uh, evidences for the correct transmission of Scripture have more to do with building the confidence of a believer in what he believes than in convincing an unbeliever to move from a unbelief to belief because his problem isn't essentially an absence of knowledge or information. His basic problem is negative volition and his basic problem is spiritual. Now, that's not to say that there aren't unbelievers who have legitimate questions because they've been brainwashed by the Discovery Channel or the History Channel or some uh, world's uh, Western civilization professor in college with a lot of garbage, and we have to flush out some of that garbage by exposing them to the truth, and God uses that. But the ultimate issue is presenting the, the truth of the gospel and answering questions that are necessary. What this takes us back to ultimately is what, what uh, Abraham says to the rich man in Tartarus. Remember the story, Lazarus dies and he's in paradise, the rich man dies, he's in, in torments, and uh, he goes to Father Abraham and he says, he begs him in uh, Luke 16, 27, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him, let, let Lazarus be resurrected from the dead, What's that? That's empiricism. That's see the un, the gospels are perfect here. The 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 rich man is thinking like an unbeliever. How amazing! He's thinking like an unbeliever, and he is he is looking at empiricism as the ultimate arbiter of truth. And so he says to Abraham, he says, "Let." Lazarus be raised from the dead. So on the basis of that empirical reality, my brothers will believe in God. And Abraham says to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. See, the authority isn't in 
empiricism. It's not in a miracle. The authority is in the Word of God because the Word of God speaks with authority. Those of you who are, if you were ever in the military in a boot camp and a drill sergeant came in and called you to attention, his voice carried the message of authority, and no matter what your background was, you flew out of bed and snapped to attention. The voice of God, which is the Word of God, carries embedded within it the authority that it's self-authenticating. It's not a circular argument because on the basis of what the Scriptures teach, God isn't part of the finite chain. He's outside of it so that he is the ultimate reality. And when God speaks because he's God, there's no higher court of appeal for a higher authority or a higher truth. It is the voice of God that is self-authenticating, and it's God the Holy Spirit who works in the soul of the individual uh, to make that clear. And they reject it not because there's not enough evidence. That's what Luke 16 points out, is that those brothers aren't rejecting God because there's not enough evidence. There's more than enough evidence. They're rejecting God because they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And so next time I want to come back and show how this works itself out with the Apostle Paul in two encounters he had with uh, pagans in uh, Acts, Acts 14 and Acts 17, and then we'll move on through, uh, through, the rest of, uh, through the rest of Romans. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to be reminded of the unique authority of your word and your unique authority that is unlike anything else that we experience, anything in our frame of reference, anything in creation. And the importance for us of uh, consistently assuming and living on the basis of the veracity of your word. Father, we pray that you'd help us as we think through uh, some of these issues we covered tonight just to be more effective in how we communicate, especially to those who are unbelievers. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.